0: The Power to the podcast. the bike nerds podcast this is episode 115
1: yay Ooh. sarah how are you doing today
0: i'm great how are you
1: we are back here in beautiful boulder colorado it's gorgeous it is amazing outside uh we no longer have to talk with the smooth jazz sounds of wkrok uh, <laughs> How how are you feeling a, a week back from your travels overseas?
0: I feel like it never even happened.
1: <laughs> it's it's <laughs> it just so it's, far away. It's a strange feeling to sort yeah. of wake up one morning, walking the streets of Europe, and then that evening to lay down in your own bed um, eating popcorn.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. <laughs> Air travel, really. Air travel. It's a fantastic tool that humans invented. Yeah.
1: How was your? Uh, how would you describe your journey to Copenhagen? Your first visit to the city of Copenhagen? How was
0: it? It was amazing. Yeah. It was really great to see, as I said in the last intro, a different type of bike culture in mm-hmm. the city. So that was really great. Really good food. Wonderful folks on the trip. It was great. Yeah. Really good food. Way better food than. So other places that have a good biking infrastructure.
1: <laughs> yeah, we had a really interesting dinner one night.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm trying to think if that was before we recorded that intro or after. It must have been must have been after. Exactly. Otherwise we would have talked about it on like. last week's yeah. intro. Um, we had this folks, we had this amazing like three-course meal that had a wine pairing and a juice pairing <laughs> for those <laughs> for those who weren't drinking wine. <laughs> But also a vegetarian option on the three-course. My favorite part was that it came with a pre-dessert and a post-dessert. Yeah,
0: it was awesome. <laughs> there were
1: three courses of
0: dessert. It was fantastic.
1: Um, any favorite moments of bicycling while you were there?
0: We biked in the rain. We did. And I enjoyed that a lot. You were barefoot. I was barefoot because I didn't want to mess up my leather shoes, so I yeah. took them off. Yeah. Priorities are very important. It
1: was cold rain.
0: I la- I thought it was a fun experience.
1: I'm not saying it wasn't fun. I'm just saying the rain was cold. It
0: was cold. particularly cold.
1: It was like Nordic rain.
0: I also like that we almost went to Malmo. Yes. What about you?
1: Um, I think I share the same hmm. uh, memories as you. Had a great, uh, we had a great experience. Folks, are, we, we led a bicycle ride while we were there. Us, Sarah and I, plus two members of our People for Bikes team, 60 people yeah. on the bike ride. I think that was a, an accomplishment. I was a little nervous about it heading into the week, but we made it. We did. Successfully. We're here. We were on time even.
0: I've forgotten about it.
1: Yeah. Um, and then today on my Instagram, I posted my favorite photo of the whole trip of uh, myself laying down in the middle of a cycle track that's next to a waterway. Um Dozing off in the in the summer sun in Copenhagen.
0: It's a good photo. It's a good picture. I feel like the Danes wouldn't like it though, because you're laying literally in the cycle track. Well,
1: the cycle track was literally against the water.
0: Fair enough. In a <laughs> relatively under currently underdeveloped part of town.
1: Underdeveloped, under construction. <laughs> no one was cycling there.
0: So who have we got on tap?
2: this week
1: oh you know this is uh this is an interview that i did uh, before we left for copenhagen it's with uh city council member ryan dorsey from baltimore um we've had quite a few baltimore folks on the podcast in recent years and that's because they've got some good stuff going on you know, I first met Ryan a couple of years ago at one of our places for bikes okay. events. I can't remember which one exactly. Uh, might have been a NACTO conference. I eh, don't know. Uh, he and I though spoke together in Miami earlier this year, so I ran into him again there. And you know, he's um, he's representative of, of a young wave of new elected leadership moving into cities with crazy ideas around mobility and sustainability and climate change. And, you know, we spend a lot of a little bit of the first part of the podcast talking about why does a person in their 30s decide to run for office as a way to sort of make make change happen? Um, and let me dive in a little bit more into sort of some of the specific policies that he's pushing, what he wants to see happen for his community. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. (laughs) and uh yeah we had we had a really 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 great interview he was uh at the time getting ready to go on a trip to japan so we talk a little bit about that about what he's sort of expecting to get out of that he's he's definitely back now um now that we're a few weeks later but uh really great interview had a good time talking with ryan happy to see him you know serving the the public good in baltimore you and i are getting ready to get exposed to some more baltimore here pretty soon. We're taking a group from Baltimore to visit uh, our fair city, Memphis, Tennessee, on a little study trip.
0: I'm excited. I'm excited, too. Is this question answered in the interview with Ryan? What was he doing before he became a council member?
1: It is answered in the interview. So if you wanted the answer, you have to listen. Yeah. And I know Sarah (laughs) Studdard listens to every episode.
0: I may not listen to every episode, but I no, do care that's about true. every episode. I keep track of it. I eventually listen to every episode. I haven't listened to every episode to date, per se. <laughs> well, the reason I asked is I think it's interesting. I use this antidote because it came from a really dumb show I watch called The Bolt Type. Okay. About young 20-somethings working for a cosmopolitan-like magazine in New York City. Nice. And one of the stars, Kat, is 26 and runs for city council in her district in new york city and then has this like crisis right before she's either like elect like on election night do you like really want to give up like this job you really actually like Mm -hmm. to become this new role that has all of these sacrifices and a very different so i'm just interested in people making that transition from the at a young age
1: nice yeah the bold type recommendation sarah (laughs) stutter is it fictional yeah
0: it's just trash satirical not really. No. it hit some it hit some real life issues. <laughs>
1: I feel like I feel like this might be a separate podcast. <laughs> Talk about the bold time. all right. Uh, Sarah, I think that's enough thoughtful banter.
0: Let's nerd out. Community demonstrations and temporary pop-up bike lanes just got a little more fun, inspiring, and safe. How? With Bike Fixation's new wave delineators, these wavy lane delineators have been part of pilot programs across the country, and now they're available to anyone or any group interested. Learn more at bikefixation.com. And now we're back with the Bike Nerds Podcast.
1: Ryan, thanks for joining us on the Bike Nerds Podcast. I'm really glad to uh, to get you on an episode here. You and I have been crossing paths for a number of years now. It's sort of our shared work in Baltimore. I'd, I'd love to sort of, before we sort of dive into transportation, mobility, and policy around that, I'd love to know, you know, how does... a uh, how does a person in their mid thirties decide that it's the right time to run for city council and ultimately get elected to, you know, to serve in that capacity?
2: Uh, thanks. I'm glad to be on here, Kyle. Um, uh, I would say, first of all, I was in my early thirties when I made the decision. I'm 37 now, but uh, in uh, mid late 2014 when it crossed my mind that this is something I should do. I was 32 and I had just turned 35 when I was sworn into office. The campaign was an effort to figure out how to become a political candidate and figure out uh, what campaigns are all about and then actually execute that. It really did take that long. It was a more than two year long effort. Um, but. For me it was just I'm a lifelong Baltimore City resident and um I live in the same neighborhood as my parents the same neighborhood I grew up in uh before we lived in that neighborhood uh I was in the next neighborhood over 6 blocks away my grade school is in the neighborhood um and you know I own a house a half a block from my folks um so I've been around there my whole life and uh I have friends uh, who have lived in Baltimore their whole lives and still live in Baltimore, and we're still close. People I went to grade school with, people I went to high school with, people I know from the music and art scene that I grew up in, um, and other people that are, you know, connected to kind of just like uh, the outdoors world or whatever, just people who are really active in their lives. Uh, in 2012, I threw hiked the Appalachian Trail um and so that kind of opened up a whole new kind of cultish world of people to me you know people who were like really into that kind of stuff uh and uh just nobody thought that Baltimore was going in the right de- direction so to speak um just everybody was like Baltimore's great but also it sucks like things seem like they could be a lot better but things are pretty like bad in a lot of ways and at the end of the day there was just kind of this assumption that it had something to do with leadership it had something to do with the people that were in a position of power and the people who uh who make you know whatever decisions get made Um, and you know, at first it was like this joke, like, oh, maybe I should just be the mayor of Baltimore. And then it went to like, well, that's not realistic, but like maybe there's something else that could be possible. And that that started to look like city council. And basically, as soon as the thought crossed my mind, I just assumed it was doable. And so uh just started asking people, like, how do I do it? And it took like kind of months and months to kind of get my head around the nuts and bolts of it but and and kind of get the work going but um but but it, it never for a second seemed like impossible um and, and you know I grew up in this arts community this kind of this DIY scene where it was just assumed that you could make things happen and uh putting that same kind of uh determination or the same kind of like figure it out as you go along attitude that you learn. You know, like I started hosting shows in my parents' basement when I was fourteen. When I was fifteen, you know, one of my good friends got his mother to co-sign a lease at a building so that we could he could open and operate an all ages club so that we could create a space where we our friends could go to hear music and attract bands to come play uh you know that same kind of attitude of just like do it yourself um seemed like it would make it possible for me to to uh win over supporters and 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 have real conversations with people about what was wrong with the city and what was possible and uh dispelling myths about what the city council is and isn't and um and saying, "Look, you're, you're being lied to. Like the city council is not the police department, so don't vote for like how you want police to act. That's somebody else's job. The city council is not the school system, so don't vote for like that kind of stuff. But vote for like big policy change because we have really serious problems of livability in Baltimore City." Um. I'm kind of rambling about that, but that's a, oh God, I'm kind of getting, getting riled up here, Kyle.
1: No, I, that that's really interesting. I, you know, in some ways it sounds like you and I sort of came from some of the same origins with this, right? I, I was heavily involved in Memphis's um, DIY punk scene. Playing, I played in bands throughout most of the early to mid to late 2000s. Um, it largely shaped The ethos that I have around how to, you know, make change in communities. I I love that and share that with you. I'm curious is is there a reason why you thought government service, city council, elected office was the was the place to plug in? Did it just fit your personality? You know, whereas I and others sort of selected sort of a more outside advocacy role. Why why dip your toes straight into the the pot of boiling water?
2: For me, so I went to school for music. I went to the Baltimore School for the Arts studying violin. And I started college as a violin performance major and finished my degree in music composition. But then went right into working for a family-owned business, selling and installing home theater systems and hi-fi stereo. And um, when... I first started getting this idea that like, you know, so it's, I think, like I said, it's, it started with this, like, not delusion, but like, uh, unrealistic idea of like, oh, I'll just be the next mayor of Baltimore City, everything will be great, right? Um, I have utter confidence in myself um it it went from that to like this scaled back idea of like okay if that's untenable like what is the most like the highest level of like impactful position that i think i could get and it i my sense my recollection is like i'm sorry about these notification sounds man i don't know how to turn them off (laughs) not a problem um not a problem uh I feel like the next one of the next thoughts that I had was was like, what am I doing now? Right by comparison, I was selling like high end surround sound systems and installing them in people's homes, like all around the Baltimore metropolitan area, and basically, I looked at this uh, from a from a perspective of like, how many people, how many people's lives am I improving and um and how am I improving them I was serving like 200 typically very well to do people each year with different projects different sales and you know retrofitting their homes or whatever um versus the prospect of like representing 44,000 people in like the least economically mobile place in the country every single day and if i look at it like from an even bigger perspective, the city council isn't just about representing my district. It's about like serving the welfare of the whole city through policy change, serving 600,000 people every day versus 200 each year. Um, I wasn't exactly like looking for changes, but like, you know, for options of how I could serve people or how I could make change. It just was a, it was an idea that presented itself to me and I ran with it. That's about it.
1: Yeah. I, I really love that. Did you know when you were running that you were destined to become the national complete streets champion in 2019? <laughs> was that, was that, a, was that a part of your platform? Did you, did you set out with that or did mobility and transportation evolve as you got deeper into, you know, sort of the the politics and the understanding of, of how to make change in Baltimore?
2: It's, it's um definitely the case that like my life experience um you know like I don't come from like an advocacy background or an activist background uh I had no experience in government or campaigns or politics or anything like that. I wasn't even involved in like you know our local bike advocacy organization bike more like I knew of them kind of in passing um but you know like. I figured out how to fix bikes from the time I was like eight or nine years old, and I think as I mentioned I'm in two thousand and twelve I was an Appalachian trail through hiker being outdoors and experiencing the world from kind of the street level um and from like a, a human scale is something that's like kind of intuitive to my my sense of the city and and the world um, and uh so it, it, it's probably natural to some degree that I gravitated towards this stuff. But it's also um, the case that it was just uh, whatever intuitive political thinking I might have. Uh, again, politics isn't something I really have ever studied. But, um, but it, when I decided I was going to get involved in it, you, know, you pick up a couple of basic things right away. Self-promotion is a really big deal. And like carving out a niche and comparing yourself to other people and what they have to offer is a a core element of campaigns. And uh, I I saw it from the very outset, not just to frame myself in a field of candidates, but frame myself in the from the perspective of like what should the city council be doing, and um, it it became really easy to go, well, I know that there are these council members who are coming back to the city council who are, who have already staked out the area around like a living wage or affordable housing as the things that they are going to champion in the coming term. But I looked and I didn't see anybody that was championing transportation so I kind of was like, "Hey, I could be the person that talks about that thing, and that could be the niche that I carve out, and people could start to recognize me for." So it really was in a from a certain kind of cynical level about self promotion, um, but it also happened that um, there's a bridge uh, in my own neighborhood that was 107 years old, but built to a 70 year life expectancy. And it was a really big deal in the communities that um, I now represent that this project get going and that it be a good project and people really unhappy with the way things were going with it. And at the same time, uh, I just happened into a thing, uh, a hackathon where people were talking about, like, how can we use technology to improve student transportation in the city? And um those two things like really impressed upon me that like we have a department of transportation that's really bad at put, like centering humans in projects both in like the design of the roadway and what that means for safety and usability but also like for centering community perspective in community engagement and how how these pro- like who is being heard and whose needs are going to be met in a project um the bridge project really helped me see that in one one from one perspective but then this like student transportation thing really hammered home for me this idea that like oh we can't teach kids that we can't get to school and for me that that really opened up this um awareness that like uh any opportunity that exists whether that's the opportunity to go to school to go to jobs, to have a social life and see family, to uh, to access healthcare, like whatever that opportunity is, if you can't physically arrive at it, for the most part, that opportunity doesn't exist. So transportation access is like it's it's really everything. If you're isolated, like there's not really much progress you can make in life if you if you can't access kind of the basics um and so just i just incorporated those things into my mind and complete streets was like oh that's how the city can make change there's also this like you know baltimore's not unusual in that uh that we don't run our bus system and people are always complaining about buses in the city and like uh, you know my sense politically was that what most politicians at the city local level were doing was saying, oh, you got complaints about transportation? Yeah, the the state runs the buses. You should really probably go and talk to them. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of instantly started to recognize that, like, actually the city's not doing what it can with the roadway, the the space that it has, like, complete autonomous control over. Like, not only does Baltimore... Well, Baltimore, Baltimore maintains all of its own ro- roadways. It has complete autonomy. Like we get state funding instead of state like maintenance effort. We They just give us money and say, you know, do with it what you need to do in order to maintain your streets. So it was really clear that the city had every ability that, you know, it had all, all the liberty that it could need. To prioritize buses, or produ- prioritize pedestrians, or prioritize cyclists in the roadway, and just was not nobody was recognizing the capacity that that kind of change would have to, to like impact the ri- reliability of transit or to create mobility options for people. So I don't know. I just kind of ran with these these thoughts. And complete streets. That was that seemed the thing to do, and. And I want to do it better than anybody, right? Baltimore, in 2015, when I first got this, when I was first running, uh, this guy, uh, this uh, architect in Baltimore who has like, you know, who who writes a blog about planning and architecture, um, Klaus Philipsen, he he went to the um, US Conference of Mayors and wrote this blog post about it and the, the the really hard-hitting point that he brought home was that when asked who looks where for guidance on like good policy in different policy areas, um, nobody looked at Baltimore as a leader for any purpose whatsoever. Nobody saw Baltimore as a leader on any issue. And so Complete Streets became this thing where I was like, not only do... I want to do what's necessary for Baltimore from a policy level, but I want Baltimore to be the absolute best that, you know, like I want somebody to look at Baltimore and say, hey, this city led on something. And from the very outset was more or less determined to write the best complete streets policy anybody possibly could.
1: Yeah, I love that sentiment. I was actually writing an email to someone today. They were asking me you know, sort of like cities that haven't yet achieved success seem to be pulling some pretty big punches in terms of the outcomes they're trying to achieve. And he, they were sort of asking me, why is that the case? And I said, well, you know, frankly, there's other communities that made mistakes for 30 years on these issues. And they don't, we learned from that and we don't have to start over, you know, from, from the ground up. We can, we can not deploy Sharos across our city, right. And instead build protected bicycle lanes. We don't have to, we don't have to try the experiment that to right. see if sharos are going to work for us or not. And it feels like, you know, from a policy perspective, that's also probably equally sort of viable, right? Like we can see where policies have and haven't you know, held teeth or produce the results that we want to see. And so why not, if we're going to go through the effort, the time and the energy of, you know, sort of being ambitious, let's, let's be ambitious. I love, I love that sort of sentiment um, as we're, you know, working in a lot of communities that don't yet quite have that reputation, right. Of being sort of on the innovative forefront of innovation.
2: I can tell you, you know, I think like the really meta kind of example of that is Chicago, uh you and i first met in chicago at the nacto conference uh in 2017. Uh, i had visited there earlier that year though with my girlfriend uh neither of us had ever been there before and we just wanted to visit and uh i asked her if it was okay if we set up a meeting with some of their dot complete streets folks while we were there and my girlfriend who like me cycles around the city and uses it as a primary mode of transportation um was like and you know and was really supportive of my work uh was like sure and she accompanied me to this meeting uh with um luanne hamilton uh who runs their complete streets program and then some of their bike ped coordinators and um and vision zero people and uh you know i walked away from that with their with a hard copy of their complete streets manual and a pot off the press pr- like even preliminary pr- printing of their vision zero book that i think they had just printed and distributed the first round of the day before um and they really impressed upon me a couple of things that were really great um they have chicago has a great complete streets manual but they were also like but we realized we kind of missed the boat on equity and uh, they kind of sought to remedy that um, with their vision zero policy. And they did exactly what you um, were kind of talking about. They were they had a really good complete streets policy, but they were able to reflect on how Vision Zero had gone wrong in a lot of places in the country, particularly with, like, emphasizing the enforcement aspect of this, like, engineering, education, enforcement. They really wanted, they they saw this as an opportunity to say, okay, we we have, like, kind of the the engineering stuff kind of codified or whatever in our complete streets manual, but it's not reaching all of the neighborhoods in the city that it really needs to reach. And we can use a, the vision zero manual to strategically target, uh, the most dangerous roads in the, you know, in the most disinvested communities in the city, but also, Really, you know, really prioritize the engineering and, and, and education aspect of things so that we don't fall into the pitfalls uh, of putting the enforcement part of that first. And I then had the benefit of learning that from them and being able to prioritize all those things properly in the creation of the Baltimore policy um, and making it the first complete streets policy to really lead with equity which was really important for Baltimore because a third of our population lacks access to a car and our bus system just does not serve people well. The stat that I'm always giving people is that if you own a car in Baltimore, you can get to 100% of the jobs in the metropolitan area within 60 minutes. But if you don't own a car, you can only access 9% of the jobs. In 60 minutes or less. That's incredibly crippling to the 30% of communities in the city that don't have access to a car. And we know exactly how it got that way um, uh, on a community level when you look at the racial redlining of the past, Baltimore being a pioneer, the first place in the country to have a racial zoning law. And then, you know, being like many cities uh in the nineteen thirties with the thirty five uh, in the nineteen thirty five uh having a nineteen thirty five racial zoning um redlining map um it's the exact same map it's the exact same pattern of uh housing uh deprivation uh that that caused is the exact same places where you have lack of access to transportation or lack of vehicle ownership um and so prioritizing creating access for for those folks had to be of the utmost priority for the city
1: how does how does the policy get into that very specifically
2: um so like the chicago manual it requires it requires that we have a uh, spelled out um project delivery and project selection process and that uh, consideration on the basis of equity be an essential part. It's required that that's a part of the project selection process. We're in the we're in the process now of like determining what more specifically that means. Um, but it also has stipulations about um, community engagement processes that they be inclusive um, of uh, you know populations on the basis of income. Vehicle non-access, um, uh, English language proficiency, and uh, you know, kind of other metrics, um, and that we do annual reporting um, that be cross-referenced with those things. Like, it's not enough for a complete streets annual report to say uh, we did a project on a street. And it's a project of this type, you know it's it's not enough to say we we did a road diet on fortieth street um, you know, and it's not enough just to say like we did a road diet that's a half a mile long in whatever hundred block of Fortieth Street. You have to go a step further and say, we chose to do a road diet because road diets have very specific outcomes in terms of pedestrian safety, and we identified this area on 40th Street as a place where we had you know real pedestrian safety concerns and also this population is like 90% black and the median income in this census tract is you know less than 50% of the median income of Baltimore City and you know, we need to serve that population better. This became a, st- a strategic, like target location for us, and we think that these are going to be the outcomes in two years, three years, five years, whatever. Like, you really have to, if you if if you really want to serve the public well, you have to be willing to just make that extra effort to be be intentional, and that's what you know, incorporating equity into project selection. Incorporating equity into community engagement, incorporating equity into annual reporting—that's all about intentionality, and 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 so it was really important for us to to center that.
1: As you as you sort of approach sort of the the process of getting that complete streets policy passed, and is is it codified? Is it sort of an official sort of piece of legislation within the city?
2: yeah i introduced the bill in uh like mid 2017 and we passed that bill in november of 2018. um we had a mayor at the time who has since resigned who uh even wrote into the transition report at the outset of the term that um and and i'll say in no small part due to Liz Cornish from Bikemore being a part of that transition team. Um, uh, that report actually said that Baltimore uh, needs to have a um, detailed and uh, forcible complete streets ordinance. So I kind of laid at the administration's feet exactly what they were calling for. Um, but, you know, Politics being what they are, it wasn't good enough that we had to have a detailed, enforceable, complete streets ordinance. But it also had to be somebody else's in origin. It wasn't. It wasn't acceptable for it to be mine. It had to be the mayor's detailed, enforceable, complete streets ordinance, or none at all. And fortunately, uh, my council colleagues and the council president stuck with me. And I stuck it out, and, and Moore stuck it out with me for the long haul. It took a year and a half to get that bill passed. But at the end of the day, the only amendment, you know, one of the things that we feared over that process was that there would be gutting amendments, things that would make it uh, weaker and uh, less enforceable, and, and, and that it would not, you know, force the issue of meaningful outcomes. Um, but at the end of the day, we were really fortunate and kind of victorious in that the only amendments to it that were of any substance were ones that we put in to make the equity provisions even stronger than they were in the original. Yeah, that's, Act. that's
1: where I sort of wanted to go with the question was, you know, to what degree that, that those equity provisions strengthen your case with your council, with your council colleagues were, were, was it problematic that you were being so forthright about equity within within that what what was the discussion like just as you sort of brought forth the equity pieces of that bill
2: um well baltimore has been kind of i mean this we have a really amazing amazing community here in baltimore city so by the time i um took office even you know at the end of 2016 Uh, especially due to the police killing of Freddie Gray in uh, 2015 Um, and, you know, the fallout of that, um, the Baltimore uprising, um, equity has, you know, had become, by the time I took office, a primary uh, point of discussion across the city, um, race equity in particular, um, and uh, there are a lot of people who, at that point, were already f- uh, familiar with the organization uh, Associated Black Charities that's here in Baltimore City. And they actually have a a, a document called uh, The Ten Essential Questions. It's a race equity toolkit for uh, centering race in public policymaking. So we have, and, and there are a lot of people here, but, you know, ABC is a very... Known and respected organization here, so uh, it was already a part of the conversation. So that was not that was not a real issue. It was, I'll say that you know one of the guys that that are now um, past mayor uh, who just resigned recently. One of the guys that she brought in was this like old white guy who had been around and part of a, was part of a political establishment for a really long time. And, uh, in the earliest draft of the ordinance, as I was doing these meetings with different agencies prior to introduction, uh, the earliest draft had a narrative, uh, kind of whereas section to the bill that laid out the history of racism in the city and laid out like the, the correlations between redlining and transportation disparity in the city. and. He said to me in the first meeting about that, basically, like, if you passed a law, if the city of Baltimore passed a law that had that written into it, well, we would then be responsible for that. You know, like, basically, (laughs) like, as long as there's not a law that acknowledges racism exists, then racism for all legal purposes doesn't exist. We can't possibly pass a law that says racism is a real thing. And um that that was that became a really serious conversation for us. Like, how do we actually address racism in a way that is passable and uh kind of legally tenable? Um, you know, I even worked with uh a guy named Ashmel Qureshi, who teaches the civil rights uh law clinic at Howard University and who was um, the lead of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund case um, about transportation in Baltimore when our Governor Hogan canceled this $2 billion light rail project, the Red Line. Um, uh, The Legal Defense Fund put forth this Title VI complaint saying that it was racially discriminatory for him to uh, cancel that project. And um, I worked with Ashmel to really understand what the legal parameters were around being able to write things like you must invest in black communities uh, into, you know, like we must, we legally must prioritize black communities. Where were the lines of kind of legality uh, under things like the Equal Protection Act? Um, We really dug deep into those kind of things. And I think that we came out with A bill that people thought was acceptable, um, but also not pithy, like that was meaningful and really intentional. The other thing that that was happening in the city at the same time was uh, my colleague Brandon Scott, who just last night we elected as the new president of the city council, um, passed... Uh, a race equity bill uh, in the through the city council and a charter amendment that voters voted on in the November general election here um, that actually says that every city agency must undertake race equity training and then have staff that is tasked with ensuring that uh, project and capital resources are distributed. Equitably in the city on the basis of race, um, and and created a race equity fund here in the city. So we actually had some other really big steps being taken at the same time that we were uh, moving this complete streets bill along.
1: That's that's a really you know fortuitous and perhaps you know strategic sort of way of thinking about this. As as you you know as you probably know. There's hundreds of complete streets bills across the country. I think you're right in sort of acknowledging that yours is is the first to sort of really go to this length to sort of call out, prioritize, and sort of name equity as a primary consideration. How do you how do you go about the process now of of making sure that, you know, the passage of the policy actually translates to implementation? And do do you have a, a sense in your mind about how long? between you know sort of the bill passing in 2018 before you start to see sort of the tangible results of that on the ground
2: yeah actually so i don't have to do it in my mind it's written into the bill nice nice There's, uh the, the, so the the bill has been signed and uh has which means it's been enacted uh which is like a technical term but the effective date of certain elements of it has not yet arrived. Um, the bill spells out a 13-month-long implementation process um, that involved, like, uh, 60 days out, the Department of Transportation had to provide, You know, from, from the date of the signing of the bill, the Department of Transportation had to provide a preliminary community engagement plan to the City Council's Land Use and Transportation Committee. Um, And at 10 months, the department has to publish a draft version of the manual for public comment. And at 13 months, the department has to actually formally adopt that manual. And at the beginning of each month along this whole process, they have to issue public uh, progress reports to the council. and so there's this. Uh, there's there are many phases to this process of getting this manual together, and there's dialogue that's happening uh, throughout that process. Part of this also, part of what's in the bill, is the forming of a complete streets um, uh, committee, uh, like an advisory committee that's like a multi-agency committee of DOT, DPW, and. Uh, other agencies that have business in the public right of way, including the state MTA being invited as a participant in that committee. Um, So there, so we're still in the process of kind of getting the actionable kind of manual together. Um, But the year and a half long process of getting the bill um, passed and these periodic updates continue to, uh, raise public awareness and particularly raise awareness among my colleagues. And I would say even more in particular, my young, uh, colleagues, you know, cause I'm one of eight new people that joined our 14 member city council in 2016. We had a massive turnover that year and out of the out of the eight new ones, uh, six of us were under the age of 40, um, and so we have a bunch of new like bright kind of uh ambitious young people who uh you know just have been raised in this on the the ideas or have come up around the ideas of best practices like there are such things as best practices and are really interested in implementation of best practices and so we've been able to really raise that awareness among my colleagues And they are now more versed in, you know, even being able to discuss and request that good pedestrian and cycling and transit oriented kind of projects exist in their district. And I've been able to, you know, I'd say play a significant part in helping my colleagues understand the relationship between transportation and land use and, you know, what dense, multi, you know, mixed-use development has to do with transportation and affordability in the city and, like, then other things by extension, equitable, fair access to healthy foods, how transportation and land use all relate to those kind of things. And how to advocate for better projects that bring that kind of global awareness to the communities that they represent. So uh, that is to say that we haven't really seen projects that are specifically required uh, after the actual implementation of this law, but we're st- seeing progress even in the meantime while implementation is you know a, a process that's being undertaken. It also helps that that, while we were working through the passage of this really large complete streets bill, I also passed another ordinance that amended our city fire code that struck this really bad provision that uh, that streets have to always be twenty or twenty foot, you know twenty feet clear across which is prohibitive of like smaller uh, slower moving streets even existing um i struck that those provisions basically and substituted in them in the fire code that street design shall be cons- shall be determined uh, by the nacto urban street design guide so i actually codified into our law along the way that that, that that manual from the National Association of City Transportation Officials uh is actually the law of the land in terms of how we de- you know how we allocate road space.
1: You know, to sort of extend a metaphor f- from earlier, you're building protected bike lanes, not sheriffs, right? You're the policies enacting sort of the timetable, the development in there, you know, created creates a process to sort of shepherd through, you know, that, that decision-making process. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's just, you know, a testament to all of the things that you've mentioned in terms of, you know, seeking guidance from other people, looking to other outside resources, understanding what does and doesn't work in other communities and, you know, and not falling back on what might be super easy to get across, you know, a pretty sort of lame duck policy and, and really shooting for something that actually matters. So, you know, applause to you. And, and, you know, it's probably, it's probably why you got the award in a lot of ways. I I wonder, just as a sort of a, a final question here, as even as you are, you know, sort of overseeing and shepherding that, that the creation of that process, you know, through its natural timeline, what are you looking towards from either, either currently or the future about what the, what are the, what are the next ambitions around you know, it's, it's, it doesn't stop with just the passage of a really progressive Complete Streets policy. What, what other kinds of things are on your horizon, legislation that you'd like to tackle or things that you'd like to see, you know, the Office of City Council really sort of continue to address?
2: I have this really unique position and really the privilege of representing what I would say is like the most diverse and homogeneously middle class district in the city um where we have an exceptionally low rate of crime and violence in a violence uh, kind of ridden city um and it puts me in the unique position of being able to look both for like how we dig deep into systemic policy change um you know whereas like a lot of my colleagues are really focused on like how am I getting rid of the blight in my community? Or how am I like, um, how am I working with a community that's experiencing trauma uh, every day because of violence on their streets and things like that? You know? Like I, I am really fortunate to not have the level of disparity in my district or despair in my district that some of my colleagues have to face day after day. It puts me in the unique position. Of being able to invest a lot of time and energy into developing strong policy, it also puts me in the position of being able to say, "Well, how can I like look for um, projects that could occur in my district that could serve as um, a model for how we revitalize other communities in uh, it throughout the city so as an example of a project like that, uh, in 2018, I got our uh, state to uh, allocate some funding or earmark some funding for a road diet project uh, in a business district in my in my district um, to reduce this road that's basically uh, used for commuters tearing through communities. Uh, in order to get from outside of Baltimore City and the surrounding county, uh, you know, to like eight miles south into downtown uh, for their jobs and back every day uh, to the detriment of the communities and the, the, vi- the, the, the vitality of the business district that they pass through. Uh, we've got this project happening right now to reduce these like four lanes of travel to only two lanes with protected cycling facilities. And this street is not unusual in Baltimore uh, as like these spokes that run from downtown into surrounding suburban areas uh, that run out in all directions. And, um, you know, I want this to serve as an example for how all of those spoke corridors um, can be revitalized because they're all just ripped to shreds by cars being prioritized. No businesses want to locate on them because people who live even in those communities don't feel safe walking around them, let alone cycling along them. Um, So, uh, you know, I'm hoping that I can continue to encourage projects like that in my district to serve as an example as like, you know, this was pitched as like a proof of concept for how we economically revitalize the city. so that's the kind of the one thing that I would kind of want to keep doing is is looking for ways to be transformative in my district. Um but the other things, you know, our DOT is still um still underfunded and we're milking cars for a, a revenue stream for the city. Uh we have like 250 million dollars coming in this year from you know, sources of revenue that wouldn't exist if not for people's dependency on automobiles. And we're an incredibly auto dependent city. Uh, I want to see in future budgets that like none of the money that is derived from the use of single occupancy vehicles goes to anything but transportation and that a significant portion of that money gets used to build infrastructure for non-auto Oriented uh, modes of travel, or at least non, you know, single occupancy vehicles. Like I'd like for, you know, bus lanes would be great, bike lanes, uh, better sidewalks, wayfinding, things like this. Um, and so I'd really like to continue to press this as kind of like a moral issue that we can't milk cars for revenue and then not use that money to promote better transportation options for people. Um, not just for the matter of like transportation equity, but to really put our money where our mouth is when it comes to climate change. And I think that this is something that people, uh, could be increasingly responsive to. So that's something that I really want to work on. Um, but then also, you know, there's, there's, there are so many ways that we can improve our city, you know, which again, transportation relates to so many things to, Affordability, um, public health, access to education, you know, job access and economy I mean there's just it, transportation touches on everything our Our roads make up and our our right of ways make up a third of all of the available land in Baltimore City. There's no way that like that directing and putting a lens on how we determine to use that space uh, isn't going to impact basically every aspect of quality of life in our city. Um, so, but, but there, there are all these other like kind of ways we can kind of nibble around the edges at how, uh, transportation and affordability and land use are all integrated with one another. Things like parking minimums, things like, um, you know, right now, we spend an awful lot of money to provide free parking to high-level city employees, but we don't have a parking cash-out alternative to to that. Um, so, and you know, eliminating the parking minimums from our zoning code, um, and then following that with like unbundling parking from housing rental costs, and uh, creating a parking cash-out option for the city. Uh, All these other things that the average person has never heard of these things, right? The average person has heard of, hey, that bus system, it doesn't work so well. And uh, the average person has heard of, uh, why is there such bad congestion on our streets? The average person has not drawn the connection between parking minimums and the cost of Uh, rent, or they've never drawn an association between a grocery store having a massive parking lot in front of it and that impacting the the cost of their groceries. People have, the the average person has not drawn those connections. So, you know, looking for a way to put forth kind of omnibus legislation that really pushes this as like a transformative kind of mindset for change uh we just saw a big bill introduced i think today or yesterday uh in washington dc that really strikes on these things and we saw some really big changes uh last year i can't remember where whether it's like buffalo or rochester minneapolis st paul i don't remember where but like even incorporating like a prohibition on any new gas stations being built um you know really really starting to stretch for like what qualifies as fossil fuel infrastructure and uh ending the development of fossil fuel infrastructure i just really want us to think really big and be really ambitious in how we shift public mindset uh in, for for the sake of sustainability and resiliency and and helping people to understand what does and what doesn't make their community strong like if your if your idea of a strong community or a successful city is free-flowing traffic and an abundance of parking opportunity like we really need to re-educate you uh and really shift your your ingrained mindset about you know, like what what your community could and should look like <laughs>
1: Well, Ryan, I'm I'm glad you're on the case.
2: <laughs> me too, man. Um, it's a really good opportunity for me.
1: And uh, and a, you know, a lot of communities across the U.S. would be uh, would welcome a, a person of your uh, thoughtfulness and skill and magnitude and thinking about how we do about this work. I know there's a lot of work to be done still, um, but I, you know, you're doing a great job, and just want to thank you for taking time to join us on the show today. You know, and you know, I I know that. Doing the Bike Nerds podcast is not not probably uh, the top of your media list when you've got work to do. But if you ever need to uh, to come back, you're you're always welcome here um, on the show.
2: Thanks. Well, you know, if I if I do it again, it'll really. Um help drive that image I have of, oh, that's Ryan Dorsey. He's just that crazy bike guy <laughs> in Baltimore. He thinks that bikes are going to fix everything in this city that's got, you know, what where it's, it's, it's May 7th. We've had 101 plus homicides this year, uh, but he thinks that bikes are going to fix things. Well, yeah, I actually do think bikes are going to fix things. <laughs> um, but so, uh, but there are a whole lot of people out there who don't. And so I, um, I'm really Really thankful to have the opportunity to talk with other people who like really get this stuff.
1: The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of The Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OEM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit the slash Nerds.
0: Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at Nerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at The Bike Nerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com.